CHHL stepping in kind of late in the game as uh, Rich and Beth found out they would need to go to Florida this weekend for her grandfather's funeral. But uh, that very last phrase, that last uh, declaration we sang, his praise shall never, ever end throughout eternity, where we're going to be looking at some of the eternal praise sung in heaven in our text this evening. Now, in Revelation chapter 7, and if you would go ahead and turn there, Revelation 7, John sees two visions. In verse 1, it says, after this, I saw, and that's kind of a clue in the book of Revelation that John's beginning a new vision. After this, that one's completed, now there's a new one. Verse 8, same, or verse, excuse me, verse 9 in chapter 7, after this, I looked, and behold, again, uh, the beginning of another vision. And we're going to look at both of these visions this evening, two different scenes, two different sets of circumstances, but I'm convinced that John is actually describing the very same group of people in these two visions, in these two different scenes and different sets of circumstances. In verses 1 through 8, we see the saints on earth who are sealed and protected from the wrath of the Lamb. But then in verses 9 through 17, the saints in heaven who are triumphant and victorious and now rejoicing, singing that everlasting praise of our Lord. Now, you remember in chapters 6, we looked at the first six seals. There was a scroll with seven seals, and the first six were broken. And that's described in chapter 6. This is the outworking of God's purposes on this earth that is under the curse in the present age. And the first four of the seals, you recall, were uh, these four horsemen of the apocalypse, conquest and warfare and deprivation and death. And then the fifth seal, we saw the martyrs crying out from under the throne of God, saying, how long, O Lord, until our our lives are avenged and until you establish justice on the earth. And then at the very end of chapter 6, we find the sixth seal broken, and the wrath of God, the Father, and the wrath of the Lamb are poured out, and final judgment falls upon the enemies of God so that the strong and the mighty and the wealthy and the powerful, all the way down to the servants, are crying out in desperation that the mountains and the rocks would fall on them and protect them from the wrath of the Lamb. And they ask, they make this statement, the great day of their wrath has come. And they ask, and who can stand? And that's how chapter 6 ends. In chapter 7, remember we're at six of seven seals, but there's this interlude for a chapter. Chapter 8-1 tells us the seventh seal is broken. But chapter 7 is this interlude that provides us with a decisive answer to the question, who can stand? And in here we find these two visions that both give great comfort and great consolation to the people of God. So please follow as I read Revelation chapter 7 in its entirety, beginning in verse 1, Revelation 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 
12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, and behold, the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd." And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What a glorious vision John received and passed along to you and me. Well, here we find two visions of the people of God. The first vision, we find the saints on earth, sealed and protected. And the second vision, the saints in heaven, triumphant. And victorious. So let's look first of all at this vision in verses one through eight of the saints on earth. And this, we see first of all the, uh, there are four angels sent to hold back the four winds of God's judgment. Verse one says, in fact, four angels are standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Now, We believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, absolutely, but we also recognize that Scripture speaks symbolically. So when when John speaks of the four corners of the earth here, he's not saying that the earth is square or that it's a cube. We know that it's round, it's a globe, and we know that John is not saying something unscientific here. He's simply using a very, very common idiom from every direction, north, south, east, west, the four corners of the earth, as it were. And he's holding back these four winds representing the judgment of God. You remember the first four seals, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, of conquest and and warfare and pestilence or, or deprivation and death. And then we find this sixth seal, judgment being poured out upon the enemies of God. And chapter 7, it's as if uh, the, the vision revealed to John, they take a step back and they point to a time before all of this takes place, certainly before that final sixth seal is poured out. 
And it's important we recognize here that Revelation is not a strict chronology. It's not uh, to be t- uh, interpreted chronologically. It's to be interpreted thematically. And so the first scene describes the, the security of the saints in the present age, even though it is an age under tribulation, an age characterized by conquest and warfare and, uh, and, and deprivation or pestilence and death. But John sees these four mighty angels holding back the four winds of the wrath of God as it were. We're not talking about gentle breezes. We're talking about gale force winds of wrath blowing across the entire creation. But they're holding it back for a time. And we find out why in verses 2 and 3 where the next angel, a fifth angel, appears. Ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea. I, I, I understand those are the four angels who were crying out to the four horsemen. Come, and one after another would come. But they're holding back as it were. He says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, the question was asked at the end of chapter 6, who can stand before the terrible, terrifying wrath of God? And the answer is no one can in their own strength, certainly no one in our own righteousness. We would all be consumed. However, the children of God receive special protection from the wrath of God. And here it is. It's, it is presented to us as a seal on their foreheads. What does this seal represent? What is the seal given to the saints of God? I would argue the seal is exactly what Paul speaks of in several places in his epistles. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1. Verse 3, Paul blesses the Lord here. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he enumerates these spiritual blessings of God's predestinating grace. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. We're predestined to adoption. We're redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we come to verse 12. Or verse 11, excuse me. In verse 11, in him, speaking in Christ, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to this counsel of his will. How do I know for sure that I'll get that inheritance? How can we be sure? Well, so that we who were the first in hope might hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is that seal guaranteeing that our heavenly inheritance will indeed be ours and no one can take it away. It's, he is a seal of promise. He is a seal of protection and he is a seal of ownership. We are his and none can ever take us away. And so here we have this fifth angel who places a seal on the foreheads of all of the servants of God. And anyone who has this seal on his forehead need never fear the judgment of God. We should have no fear of God's judgment if we have the Spirit of God abiding in us. Now, I don't believe that this seal is a literal, like, visible seal, like a tattoo across your forehead. 
I don't think that's what it's talking about at all. He's talking about the indwelling Holy Spirit who has sealed us until the day of redemption. First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22, it is God who establish us, establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So, so the wrath of God is held back until the servants of God are sealed. Now, these first five seals, conquest pouring out, when did that happen? Well, it's been happening from time immemorial all the way up until Jesus returns. Warfare, that's been going on from thousands of years before Christ until he returns. Deprivation, death, all of these things, those are, those are realities of life in this sin-cursed world. And then we come to the fifth seal, and the martyrs are crying out, how long? And the Lord says, just wait a little longer. See, there's no definite point in time or particular event in history that's being described here in these first five seals. However, when you come to the sixth seal and the judgment of God is being poured out upon the enemies of God, that is a set time. That is the day of wrath. That is the day of judgment, the great and final day of the Lord. And the angel is holding that back, as it were, to assert to make sure that the children of God are sealed and protected from that final judgment. So the vision here in Revelation 7, it's not pointing to a particular time. It's pointing to what happens to every single Christian when they become a Christian. It points to that reality that every true child of God is sealed by the Holy Spirit the moment he believes in Christ. We read a moment ago in Ephesians 1.13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So we're talking about an eternal gospel reality that's taken place, or a gospel reality taking place from the time that the Spirit was poured out until the Lord Jesus returns once again. And William Hendrickson commenting here says, this sealing is the most precious thing under heaven. I'm always careful when people make superlative statements. Well, let me think. Is there anything more precious, the blood of Jesus? Uh, let's not argue about that sort of thing. This is an, an, an inexpressibly precious gift given to the people of God. And once you and I are sealed, we are protected from the wrath of the Lamb. This morning, uh, when Doug shared his testimony uh, that, that he lived under this fear that he could lose his salvation. It's up to you to, to gain it by your works, and it's up to you to keep it by your works. But the answer is no, that's not true. We are sealed in the Spirit. He is a guarantee that we will inherit that which God has promised to us. Recently, someone asked me, well, where does the Bible teach us that a Christian can't lose his salvation? And the first place I went is that the fact that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit who's a guarantee of our inheritance. There's certainly other passages that teach us none can snatch us out of the hand and there's, of Jesus, and there's no one who can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But this sealing of the Holy Spirit is a powerful assurance of the perseverance or the preservation of the saints of God. Now, it's important, though, that we recognize this sealing protects us from the wrath of the sixth seal, but it does not protect us from the first four. The fifth seal, we see the martyrs under the throne crying out, how long, O Lord, until justice is established and you avenge our blood. They 
were subject to conquest and to warfare and to deprivation and to death. They were direct targets of attack and of oppression and even martyrdom itself. Remember the Lord Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10 and verse 28. Only God has the power to destroy our souls. That seal ensures that none will ever do so, including God himself. We are safe in his arms. And so we find that this fifth angel places this seal on the foreheads of the 144,000. And again, we know that it's not actually an angel giving us the Holy Spirit. God does that. But these symbols are here for us to visualize this glorious gospel drama unfolding for us. And there's a lot of debate. Who are these 144,000 mentioned? Uh, and in fact, over and over, every single 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from that tribe. Uh, who are they? Now, turn with me to chapter 14. Revelation 14. When I looked... Or then I looked. That tells us it's a new vision, right? And behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. There's no way this is not the very same group of people. And this time, rather than calling it a seal, it's actually the name of Christ and the name of the Father written on our foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne. And before the throne of the four living creatures and before the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. They're no longer on earth. Here in chapter 7, we see the 144,000 on earth being protected from the wrath of God, not yet in heaven, but here we find them safe and sound, every single one. Now again, 144,000 is a, I'm convinced it's a symbolic, not a literal number. But as we look in chapter 7, we find 12,000 from each of these 12 tribes, there are some who interpret this to say when, when, when John des, uh, describes them and 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, it can be none other than Jews, physical descendants of Abraham, who are converted and brought into the kingdom. In fact, what uh, uh, dispensationalists teach is that the church has, is, is removed from the scene. There's a, a, an invisible rapture, and we are taken off the scene into heaven. And then God turns his attention from the church that's now in heaven and places his attention upon Israel. And he redeems this multitude of Jews and brings them to faith in Christ. And so God fulfills his purpose. He's fulfilled his purpose for the church, and now he's fulfilling his purpose for Israel as if God has a plan A and a plan B or a two-track plan for his chosen people. But you see, the book of Romans makes very clear the church is spiritual Israel. We are the Israel of God. The Gentiles have been grafted in, so there's one church and one people and one nation and one kingdom. 
Paul refers to the church in Galatians 6, verse 16, as the Israel of God. And Romans 10, verse 12 says there's no distinction between Jew or Greek, slave or free. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. There's no difference. There's no distinction within the kingdom of God. Galatians 3.28, there's neither neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm belaboring this point because this is so widely taught in our day. And, and people don't, don't realize that there's one purpose and one people. Ephesians 2 verse 12 says, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. He's speaking to Gentile believers here in Ephesus. You were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Let me say that again. He has made us both one. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. One body, one new man, one people, one kingdom, one church. In fact, we, we, we find this reality hinted at even in the list to the 104, of the 144,000 as, as we think of these 12 tribes of Israel. Now, if you look in the back of your Bible, you will probably find a map that says the 12 tribes of Israel. I do. And you look at the names of all of them, and it's very curious. Because as you look at that map, you will not find the name Joseph, and you will not find the name Levi. The reality is the parcels of land given to the sons of Israel, Levi was not given a parcel of land. Levi The Levites, the Lord himself was their portion. And so the portion that would go to Joseph actually goes to two, his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so that list includes Joseph as well as his son Manasseh. Now, also, Dan was one of the 12 sons of of, of Israel, but the, the tribe of Dan introduced idolatry into the nation of Israel. Dan's name is omitted. Another clue telling us that this is not quite exactly a one-to-one correlation is that who was the firstborn of, of, of Jacob? Do you remember? Reuben. But when you look at this list in Revelation chapter 7, Reuben is not the first. He's the second. The first is Judah. What is significant about Judah. It is that the Lord Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus was descended from Judah, and so the messianic line is raised to the head of the class, as it were. And so we recognize this is no ordinary list of Jewish chronology or Jewish family lines. Rather, this is the messianic list. This is... is, uh, 
the new covenant. This is all peoples of God. Now, if you do the math, 144,000, it's 12,000 times 12, right? Well, earlier on, remember we had 24 elders, right, around the throne of God. And we said those 24 elders represented the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, so that 12 and 12 was, was uh, showing Old and New Testament completion. And when you take 12 and multiply by 12, you get 144, and by 1,000, which is a number of completion, and you have 144,000. I want to be very careful that we don't spend a whole lot of time in numerology, all right? Because you can get way off a field in that as well. But I'm convinced that this really is symbolic of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in all ages, Old Testament and New Testament, Jew and Gentile, saints all sealed by the Spirit of God. And it's a fixed and perfect number known only to the Lord himself. It's all of those who, are, who call in the name of the Lord who are called by God himself. So here we have them viewed as on the earth the angel holding back the wind of God's wrath until they each are sealed so that they would not experience that sixth seal of the wrath of God. But then, now again, here we are in, in earth. In Revelation chapter 14, we saw the 144,000. They're in heaven. Much like what we find in the following vision that we're going to look at now in verse 9 and following. The saints, triumphant, victorious, and rejoicing. So here we see the saints of God around the throne of God. Now there's a contrast between these two visions. The first again is the saints on earth and the second is the saints in heaven. The first has been called the saints militant, still fighting the, the good fight as it were, deal, engaged in spiritual warfare. But the second is the church triumphant. The first is the church preparing for and enduring danger and tribulation. The second, they're waving palm branches, a sign of victory and triumph. The first tells us it's a fixed number. The second says it's a multitude no one can count. And the first specifies the 12 tribes of Israel. And again, we know that Israel is spiritual Israel. But the second clearly says from every tribe and people and language and nation. So let's look at the vision, the saints, before the throne of God and before the Lamb. These are those that the world hated. The world reviled them. The world persecuted them. In the world's eyes, they were the biggest losers in the world. And here we find them as the ultimate victors, triumphant before the throne of God in glory. They're enjoying this perfect fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, receiving from him a glory that far outweighs present suffering. Now remember that question at the end of chapter 6. The great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Well, here we find them standing in the presence of God, waving palm branches and worshiping, sealed by the Spirit on this earth and safely taken home to heaven, standing before the throne of God and the Lamb, the Lord Jesus. It tells us here in verse Fourteen that they're wearing white robes. They've washed their robes and made them white. And the lamb. And we're going to look more about that in a few moments. 
But those white robes are the rewards that were promised to all who overcome. If you, you remember in, in, in Revelation chapter 3, turn back there if you would. Jesus is addressing the church at Sardis. And the church at Sardis was in sad shape. I know your works, verse 2 or verse 1. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. They were in trouble. Verse 3, he says, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you will not know what hour I'll come against you. Yet, if you, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not sold their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I'll confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Those white robes are promised to those in Sardis who truly trust in the Lord Jesus. And later in chapter 3, as he addresses the church at Laodicea, they were lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. And they were in danger of being spewed out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus. And yet he says, I counsel you to buy for yourselves white robes to cover your nakedness. Buy from him. And, of course, it's at no cost. In chapter 4, the, the 24 elders are around the throne of God uh, representing the Old Testament and the New Testament saints, and it says they are dressed in white. In chapter 6, the martyrs under the throne, each is given a white robe. These robes represent the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus, the imputed righteousness of Christ. The, the hymn writer says, when he shall come in with trumpet sound, oh, that I may in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. They're wearing white robes. They're, they're holding palm branches. And that reminds us of that triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem right before he is to go to the cross. But that waving palm branches, it's called Palm Sunday, because it's a declaration of his triumph. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Back to verse 10, though. It says that they are worshiping our God. Revelation 7, again, back in verse 10. They're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Now, I want to make an important point here. I don't want to split hairs here, but we often talk about my salvation, right? My salvation. Well, here it says salvation belongs to the Lord. It's very interesting. David says, restore to me the joy of thy salvation. The reality is salvation is God's, not ours. We experience salvation. Now, I'm not going to ever correct you if you say my salvation, okay? My experience of salvation, but it's God's. He is the one who gives it. Again, that, sound, that may sound a little hair-splitting, but the point is, this is a gift of God. He sovereignly dispenses or chooses whom and when he will give that salvation. And we are the recipients of his salvation. Salvation belongs to our God. And so this song before the, the throne, it, it, it affirms the grace of God that he pours out upon us, giving us a salvation that you and I don't deserve. Too many times I think we get used to the experience of the reality that we have this salvation, particularly if we're raised in church and maybe converted at an early age, and, and we, amazing grace doesn't seem to amaze us as much as it ought to. But here we see that in heaven we will be amazed 
at this gift. Salvation belongs to our God. John Newton, I read this this week, as a matter of fact, said, John Newton wrote that when I get to heaven, I will be amazed by three things. First of all, there will be people there I would not have expected to be in heaven, and I'll be amazed. Secondly, there will be people there that I, or I will expect to see certain people there, and they won't be, and I'll be amazed. He said, but the thing I'll be amazed about the most is that I'll be there. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. John Newton, a former slave ship owner, an operator, singing around the throne, dressed in a white robe and waving palm branches, utterly amazed at the wonder of salvation. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining of the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. Well, that's the saints worshiping in God, worshiping God around the throne. And then in verse 11 and 12, everyone else in heaven joins in. All the angels were standing around the throne and all around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. And does anybody here, without looking back at your Bibles, want to guess how many terms of praise are used in verse 12? I'll give you a hint. It's a perfect number. Seven. Somebody looked, I can tell. And the point is that words enough are not adequate to express the glory of God in heaven. And so one is piled upon the other, upon the other, upon the other, to try to express in some way the infinite glory of our God. And so this elder turns to John and he says, who are these? And where do they come from? And John doesn't even hazard a guess. He says, sir, you know. And he's like, well, yeah, I do know. And then he describes these saints around the throne in heaven. Verse 14, he says, they have come out of the great tribulation. And we're not talking about a seven-year period immediately prior to the return of the Lord Jesus. We're talking about the present age, which is full of experiences of tribulation, sometimes greater, sometimes less. But as we've read of the first four, those four horses of the apocalypse of conquest and warfare and deprivation and death, tribulation pressing in on us, the word actually means squeezing or pressure. You could translate it in 21st uh, century terminology, stress. But it's stress on steroids, right? But in heaven, there will be no trials, no temptations, no battles, no oppression, no stress or pressure or tribulation of any kind. They have been taken out of the great tribulation. And they've washed their robes and they've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, now moms, let me ask you this question. If your kid comes in with, with, with filthy garments, do you go find a, 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 a bloody animal and wash their robes in that and expect to somehow that's going to... Of course not. It's totally counterintuitive. It just makes it worse. But it really points us to a gospel reality that it's the blood of Jesus alone that can cleanse our sins. And Hebrews says all the blood of lambs and bulls and goats can never do that. But only the precious blood of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, unlike any other blood, unlike any other cleansing agent. He alone can cleanse us. Though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they'll be as wool. On that day, the saints around the throne will be 
holy, righteous, holy, pure before the Lord Jesus. It's robes of righteousness that he gives us. We cannot get there on our own merits. Let me say that again. Don't try to earn your way to heaven. Don't try to clean yourself up to make yourself worthy so that Jesus will accept you when, he asks him, when you ask him to be your Lord and Savior. He cleanses you. You can't do it. You don't have to, you don't have to clean all the dirt off you before you get in the bathtub. The bathtub is to get the dirt off. You don't have to clean up your life in order to come to Jesus. You come to Jesus, and in coming to him, you repent, you believe. He cleanses. Though your sins be as scarlet, he washes them white as snow. I believe it was Top Lady that said in his hymn, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal, no respite, no. Could my tears forever flow, all for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. He has saved us. He has washed us. If you are in Christ, washed you white as snow. Not a spot remains. Now, step back and you say, wait a minute, I, I still struggle with this sin. I still struggle with that sin. I, I, I struggle with, uh, yes, of course. We're in the process of growing and being conformed in the image of Jesus Christ, but justification by grace through faith is an instantaneous act on the part of the Lord, and we are clothed in his perfect robes of righteousness. And as we stand before the Lord, we are as pure and sinless as we will be in heaven. Now again, that doesn't mean he's blind to the fact we still struggle with sins, and he's sometimes disciplining and sometimes uh, uh, shaping and molding and instructing. But in terms of his receiving us as his sons, there's nothing else to be done. It is finished, our Lord said on the cross, which means the entire penalty and price for our redemption has been paid. And so it says, because we have washed our robes white, it says, therefore, verse 15, there before the throne of God. Now, you know what we're supposed to do when you come to word therefore, Right? What's it there for? It's drawing a conclusion. Because we have been taken to heaven, because we have been taken out of this great tribulation and we have washed our robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, therefore we are before the throne of God, serving him day and night in his temple. Because of this cleansing, we're now qualified to stand in his presence Psalmist says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. We get to stand inside, not as doorkeepers, but inside dwelling before the throne. Now, let me say, I love being a pastor. I wouldn't do anything else in the world if I had a choice. I'd do this for the rest of my life. But there are trials involved in serving the Lord. There are disappointments. There are heartaches. There are hardships. And there are those who are serving the Lord in other places of the world who do so at the very risk of their life and of their families' lives and of their their livelihoods, their trials and hardships involved in serving the Lord because we live in a world of sin. And seeking to win lost people, we find that many times they want nothing to do with this Lord whom we love so much and whom we proclaim earnestly. We're sent to bind up the brokenhearted, and sometimes it breaks our hearts as we weep with those who weep and as we see their, their pain. There's a sacrifice. You put your hand to the plow and you take up the cross, and you cannot look back and you cannot 
continue or fail to continue denying yourself every day. Serving the Lord in this life has challenges, not just for the pastor, but for every Christian. <laughs> but on that day, when you serve him before his throne, there's no sacrifice, there's no cross to take up, there's no self denial to be engaged in. The cross will be in the rearview mirror, and it will simply be the joy before us, will be our eternal experience. Now, you read this and say, day and night they'll serve him in the temple. And, and you might say, oh, no, wait a minute, Pastor. You mean we don't get a break? There's no time off? There's no vacation? There's, there's, there's no rest for the weary? And the answer is, there will be no weary. And we will not need rest. See, that's all indications or, or results of the curse. But in serving the Lord in heaven is a sheer delight. If he were to, to, to cause the, the whistle to go off and say, uh, your shift is over, we'd say, no, please don't make me leave, right? It won't be wearying. It won't be frustrating. It won't be monotonous or, or discouraging or mundane in any way. It's sin, and it's the curse that comes from sin that makes work a chore and tiresome. The ground was cursed. Work would involve pain all the days of our lives, Scripture tells us. That ground would no longer be perfectly fertile, but it would be bear thorns and thistles and all manner of weeds and other things infesting the ground. And by the sweat of our brow, we have to earn or raise our food. But you see, in heaven, all things are made new. There's no more thorns. There's no more thistles. There's no more weeds or drought or pestilence. There's no more locusts or pests of any kind. There's no more conflicts with coworkers or unreasonable bosses. There's no more supply chain shortages. No more drudgery or disappointment or difficulty in our work. You will never, ever again wonder, does it even matter whether I do this job right or not? How many of you found yourself going, what does it matter that I'm doing this? Never again, day and night, we'll serve the Lord in his temple and it will be a sheer delight. We will not want a break. We will not want time off. We will eagerly enjoy and love serving the Lord. Now, I don't know exactly what that's going to look like because we also see that the Lord entrusts ruling cities and, and, and lands to uh, some of his people. And so there's, there's, we want to be careful here that we're not too rigid in how we interpret these things. Are we in the temple, or are we out serving, or is it all his temple? Or is the lamb himself the temple? Whatever it is, it will be a sheer delight, and it will be utterly fulfilling. Now, someone asked the question, will we experience time in heaven? You know, the Bible says that uh, with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day, and God is uh, temporal or outside of time, but will we experience time? Well, we have the martyrs in chapter 6 saying, how long, O Lord? And he says, it's a little longer. That seems to indicate time. Day and night, serving in the temple. That seems to indicate time. Seems to indicate the answer is yes. But here's really the point. We can debate that kind of thing, and that's not the focus. The focus is this, verse 16. Every sorrow, every hardship, every disappointment, all pain, it's all in the background. It's all past. 
There are Christians in other parts of the world, not so much here, but in many places that hunger is a daily part of their experience. But in verse 16, it says, they shall hunger no more, nor thirst anymore. Remember, John, Jesus said in John 7, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me, and from within him will flow rivers of living water. And the, the, the hymn writer says, the streams of earth I've tasted more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness his mercy, mercy doth expand. There's, there's that, that, that taste that we have of that living water, but oh, how we long for more. In heaven, we will not hunger any longer. We will not thirst anymore. Our hearts will be fully satisfied. The lamb will be their shepherd, and he will lead us to springs of living water. We read that promise in John 17 about springs of living water, and, and we look at ourselves and say, is something wrong with me? Why don't I feel this overwhelming fullness that he seems to describe here? And I hear people talking about this deeper life experience where you have this living water flowing from you all the time and unspeakable joy and everything else. I'm convinced. I'm convinced of this. Some people by temperament are just more joyful than others. I really believe that. But in heaven, we will all be unspeakably joyful. And no one will ever have to fight for joy, to use a term of John Piper's. It will be our unending, uninterrupted experience. Oh, Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. Streams of earth I've tasted more deep, I'll drink above. There to an ocean fullness his mercy doth expand. Glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. And when we understand that, we've tasted those streams. And we will be utterly amazed at the fullness of them. That keeps us longing for heaven. And then we find here this very last, last statement. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What a tender Tender statement. The ra- Hide us from the, the, the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb. And God will come and he will wipe every tear from our eyes. For the enemies of God, the face of God is a horrifying, terrifying reality. For the sealed child of God, a tender heavenly father wiping away our tears. You know, I know believers who seem to have trouble-free lives But I also know quite a few who seem to have sorrow upon sorrow and and tear upon tear. And I had someone ask me uh, one time after uh, uh, their spouse had passed away and said, I know he's in heaven. I know that he's joyful with the Lord, but why am I still struggling with sorrow? Why am I weeping? And I took this dear sister to Revelation 21 that said that he'll wipe every tear from from our eyes, that the former things passed away and I said on that day those former things will be gone but right now those former things are present things we are in a life we are in a day with sorrow and tears and mourning and crying and pain but on that day God himself will wipe those from our eyes and there will be no more cause for sorrow that's a beautiful picture of the bliss of the unmixed joy of heaven So again, we come back to that frightful question, who can stand in the day of God's wrath? And we find the answer in chapter 7. All who are sealed with the Spirit of God, by the grace of God. All who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
And we will stand before the Lord and rejoice and praise and serve him in his temple night and day with joy and fulfilled and overflowing hearts. There will be a soul satisfaction our hearts can only long for in this life. But in that day, those springs of living water truly will never run dry.